we're delighted if you are here visiting us this morning. Um, perhaps you're visiting with uh, somebody who's getting baptised. We're a huge welcome to you. So we have just stood and read the creed. If you're not familiar with the creeds, that they are summaries of Christian faith that have been handed down through generations. They're really a distillation of truth that Christians together believe that transcend time and place and different expressions of Christianity. So if you are visiting here today, you don't normally go to church and you think, what do Christians believe? If you can't get on the Alpha course, that was it. In a nutshell, that is what Christians believe. And right at the beginning of this series, Andy, who started it, said that the, the creeds are to the Christian faith a bit like the foundational blocks in a game of Jenga to a Jenga tower, if that picture can go up there. You know how in the game of Jenga there are some blocks that you can push out and the tower stays standing? And there are some blocks, if you push them out, the tower totally collapses. Well, creeds are like the tower blocks that if you push out, the, to the tower will totally collapse. They are so foundational to what Christians believe. And the last few weeks, we've been uh, working through line by line the creed, engaging in its progression. So we've seen the progression of Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the Trinity. We've seen the progression, the story of the gospel, how God creates, how Jesus comes to rescue, and then how the Holy Spirit is sent to recreate. That's in the creed. And the creed also shows us the story of God's people and how God the Father is the most prominent in the Old Testament. He takes center stage. And then in the Gospels, how Jesus becomes the one that we gaze upon through to the second half of the New Testament where we see the story of the church and how the Spirit is poured out and his prominence is in all that we read. So having looked at God the Father and God the Son over the last few weeks, today we get to the line, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Of the three persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is probably the one who is least understood. Whether you're a church regular or not, you probably can have a concept of God as Father, we know what a good father should do, what they should be like, whether we feel we have good fathers or not. We can understand that God as a father, we can kind of get that. God as son, well, he was a person. We relate to people. So we can kind of understand a man who lived and how we can connect with him. Even Jesus as Lord, understanding his authority. We know what it is to relate to people who have authority over us. So we can kind of get that. But God the Holy Spirit. Many of us would know that he's part of the Trinity. But what he's like. What is his work in the Trinity? How we, do we understand what he do, does? How do we interact with him. We're probably less familiar with that, some of us. Is he a force? Is he a ghost that creeps up on you and does things that you don't really want him to? Even the word spirit is a title that we're less familiar with using. 
Well, my hope is that technical concerns aside, in the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to see why this line, I believe in the Holy Spirit, is in the creed, and who we are saying that we actually believe in when we say it. Well, throughout church history, various groups have denied the nature, personhood, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the whole of this final section of the creed, not just this line, is making clear that the Holy Spirit has a unique and divine nature and that he is working his purposes in the final age before Jesus returns again. But who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's the third person of the Trinity. He is part of the Godhead. There is one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is distinct from the Father and the Son, and he isn't just the name of God's power. He is a distinct person. He is a person and not a force. So he isn't an it. He's a person, and we should refer to him accordingly. He's a person, and he is fully God. He has the attributes and characteristics of God, and we are going to look in a minute at what it means for the Holy Spirit's personhood and his divinity. And he has the, a unique role in the Godhead. And as such, he deserves our respect, our worship, and our adoration. He is God. He isn't an optional extra to the Christian faith. Ketchup or no ketchup, fries or no fries, thank you very much. He is integral to our faith and our future he is a full member of the Godhead, and we see him repeatedly referred to with the context of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And did you know he features on the first and the last page of the Bible? So God the Father, Yahweh, is prominent in the Old Testament. We see Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, but Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are the first words of the Bible. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit appears on the first page, and he appears on the last page where it says the spirit and the bride say come. The spirit and God's people are ushering in the return of Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, so that's the time before Jesus was born, we see the Holy Spirit come upon specific people at specific times and for a specific task. The Holy Spirit gives a man named Bezalel abilities and gifts to be able to build God's temple. Exodus 31, verses 1 to 3, it says this. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, 
with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. One man, specific task. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that, that the Holy Spirit comes on people, specific people, specific times for specific tasks. As we move into the New Testament, it's Jesus who takes the center stage of the story. And we read that in the Gospels. But the Spirit's work is evidence. It's the, is evident. It's the Holy Spirit who comes upon Mary in, the, in her womb and creates Jesus. Matthew 1.18 says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who descends on Jesus at his baptism. Matthew 3.16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And it's the Spirit that leads Jesus after his baptism. Luke 4.1 And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So the Holy Spirit is clearly with Jesus. But as Jesus comes to the end of his earthly life, he begins to prepare his disciples for his departure. He's first going to die upon a cross and take the punishment for sin. Sin is the Bible's word for missing God's mark. Jesus knows he's going to go to the cross and die. We read in the creed, crucified, died, was buried. But he knows that when he's risen from the dead, he'll leave earth and return to his Father in heaven. And he's told his disciples, this is going to happen, he's going to leave him, them, him. And the disciples are like, Jesus, where are you going? They can't figure out where he's going. But speaking of his departure, Jesus says this in John 14, verses 16 to 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be within you. Let's read that again. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is saying that whilst he is going to leave, he's going to send another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with them forever. Later in John, Jesus says, actually, it's better that I go, that I can send another. It's better that I leave you. If I don't leave you, I can't send him. But if I do leave you, if I go, I can send another helper. What does Jesus mean by this phrase, another helper. Let's think about what he's saying here. 
Basically, Jesus is saying, it is better for the church, it is better for you if I leave than if I stay. Jesus is saying, it's better that I go. It's better that another helper comes than for me to stay with the church, with the disciples, with God's people. He's saying that him going, him leaving the disciples on earth, leaving this group of people whom he's loved, he's taught, he's spent time with, who've come to trust him, that leaving them is a really good thing because if he does that, he can send someone else just like him. Another helper. Hold that in your head for a moment. I am rapidly heading towards the big 5-0, friends. And as I get older, this sad thing's happening to me that comfort is trumping fashion, <laughs> particularly around footwear that I can't find shoes that I really like and that are comfortable. So I have decided when I find something that I am just going to go on repeat purchase. I am just going to keep buying another. After six years, I'm now on my third pair of the same Birkenstock sandals. I have just bought the second pair of the same pumps, and I'm on round five of winter boots, guys. I might branch out and get a different color. But actually, I know that another pair is going to do exactly what I want it to do. It's going to fulfill the purpose that I need it to do. Another is good for me. Similarly, Jesus is saying he is going to send another who will do the same as he has done. He will send another who will come and be a helper in the way that he has been. He's going to ask the Father to send one, another, who's going to do for the disciples all that Jesus has done for them. He's going to send another who's going to do the work that Jesus did during his life, bringing life and healing and miracles. This another helper is going to do that. All that Jesus has revealed about himself and the Father, another helper is going to continue to reveal. All that Jesus has taught about loving and die, loving others, dying to self, serving the world, praying, giving, another helper is going to continue to do and teach. And if Jesus is saying that the church will be better off with this, this another helper, better off than with Jesus himself, if he is saying that this another helper will be just like him, then this another helper must be God. Because what's better than having God with you, Jesus, the Son of God with you? So if Jesus is saying it's better that I go and another helper comes, then this another helper must be God. He is divine. Jesus is telling the, the disciples the Holy Spirit 
is God. And we don't have to go very far in the Bible to see that's true. You see, we can see that the Spirit is omnipresent. That's a characteristic of God. He is present everywhere. Psalm 139, familiar to many of us. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I go to the depths, you are there. Ever presence of God is divine, it's an, but yet it's attributed to the Holy Spirit. We see that the Holy Spirit is all-powerful. Luke 1.35 says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be called the Son of God. Only God has the power of the Most High, and yet that power is attributed to the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit is all-knowing. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says this, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Only God knows all things, and yet it's been attributed, all things have been attributed to the Holy Spirit. The creative power of God is attributed to the Holy Spirit. The eternal nature of God is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders are attributed to God the Spirit. Jesus is going to send another helper, he says to his disciples, who himself is God and has all the attributes of God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. When you say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, you are declaring the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Another helper. The word that Jesus uses here for helper is the Greek word paraclete. Paraclete means one called alongside, and it's in the context of helping. But the English language is a bit limited in helping us understand what paraclete truly means. You know, that often our language doesn't fully express the meaning of certain words. And we can tell that's the case because if you look across the various Bible translations, each of them uses a different word for this word paraclete. So in the ESV and the NLT, it uses the word helper, which I've used here. And that's okay as long as it doesn't become a demeaning term, that it's lesser or weaker, that the Holy Spirit is just a helper. Our interpretation of helper can sometimes mean less, can't it? That is not the case for the paraclete. The NIV uses the word advocate to come alongside, to stand by somebody. We understand that term. The King James uses the word comforter, but not in the terms of they're there, but about giving strength on the journey, just like having an energy drink halfway through a run. Again, I'm like toppy, I don't really understand that. But having an energy drink halfway through a run gives you strength for the journey, to finish the journey. The Common English Bible uses the word companion. The Amplified, as it always does, uses them all. Comforter, advocate, intercessor, counsellor, strengthener. But this is the paraclete. He's all of these things. He's a helper. He's a comforter. 
He strengthens. He is an advocate. Whichever one we use, and we need to use almost the word paraclete in itself to fully express who the Holy Spirit is. I want you to see they are descriptions and characteristics of a person. They don't describe a force. Helping, comforting, advocating, that's not what a force can do. That's what a person does who feels, who knows, who can be grieved, who has a will, who has emotions. This is the Holy Spirit. And this is the one that Jesus is sending and is saying, it's better that I go, that I might send him, that he would draw alongside his people. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, says John uh, 14, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus was saying that where he would soon not be with the disciples, another helper, the paraclete, would be. Jesus could only be in one place at one time, but the paraclete, we are told, can dwell with all of the disciples. In fact, he can live in the disciples. The disciples become the dwelling place, the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're familiar with the Bible, you will know that in the Old Testament, there was one place where the presence of God dwelt. It was the temple. If you wanted to meet with God, you went to the temple. When Jesus came to earth, he became the temple of God. He was the place for meeting with God. You went to Jesus because he was God himself. Now, God's people are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple of God. Wherever you go, if you're a Christian and you carry the Spirit of God with you, you are good news because you are carrying God's presence with you. There is now nowhere that God's people can go without his presence being with them. I don't know if you ever have seen the film Castaway with Tom Hanks about a guy who ends up on a remote island on his own, totally on his own, and just how the isolation totally drives him crazy because there's no one to talk to. There is no one around him. Friends, if you know Jesus, that is not the case for you and I. There is nowhere we can go where the presence of God is not with us because he dwells within us. But what a responsibility that we are now the temples of God. And I felt this morning as I was praying for this, even as I said that this morning, that you are the dwelling place of God, you know some stuff in your life needs to change because what is going on in your temple is not appropriate for the Holy Spirit to be indwelling. That actually God is calling you to a holiness, that you be a temple of his spirit, a temple of his presence. We are, can know total forgiveness, friends. I want to declare that over you today, that if you confess that Jesus will forgive you, but that we are called to be holy temples. We are called to live holy lives because we carry within us the Holy Spirit. 
As the New Testament progresses, we see this to be true. We see the Spirit of God working in his people. He bears fruit in them. He gives them power to represent Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to build his church. He teaches and he reveals Jesus to his people. I believe in the Holy Spirit is a declaration of the divinity and the personhood of Jesus. That the Holy Spirit is God, fully God, and that he's a person that we relate to. But it isn't just cerebral assent. It's something that touches us. It should change us because the Spirit of God dwells within us. We can experience the person and the power of God who comes to dwell in his people. He makes real what is true of God. The Holy Spirit is a gift to God's people. He is with them. He dwells with them. And he reveals to us the purposes of the Father and the Son. He comes alongside us that we might never, ever be alone. God is always with us. And just as I come into land before I pray, I just want to read this brilliant quote from a Methodist, Methodist minister who wrote this in 1911. The gift of the Spirit is the crowning mercy of God in Christ Jesus. It was for this all the rest was. The incarnation and crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension were all preparatory to Pentecost. That's when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Without the gift of the Spirit, all the rest would be useless. The great thing in Christianity is the gift of the Spirit, the essential, vital, central element to the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Father, we believe that you are God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Jesus, we believe that you are God's only Son and our Lord. We believe that you were crucified, you died, were buried, and you rose again. We believe that you sent the Holy Spirit to be with your people. We believe, Jesus, that you said it was better that you should go, that you would send another helper. And Holy Spirit, we believe you are that. You are him, the paraclete, the one who dwells within his people. We thank you that we have become the dwelling place of God. What a privilege what an incredible thing that we might be dwelt in by you, Holy Spirit. We believe that you bear fruit in us. We believe that you give gifts to your people. We believe that you teach us, that you reveal the Father and the Son to us. And we ask each one of us who knows you, please would you keep drawing us to the Father and the Son Please, would you keep changing us? May we be conformed to the likeness of Christ, for that is your work. You who hovered over the waters at the beginning of time, you recreate life 
and you're in the business of recreating spiritual life in us. Thank you for spiritual birth, which you have given to us. That's what Jesus said, that you would give life to us. We thank you for that. We ask, please keep drawing us to yourself. Reveal more of who you are, your divinity and your personhood, that we would live in reverent awe of Father, Son, and you, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.